You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. It's only a little after sunrise. Cold. Early autumn by a rushing river. Cold. We sit in the truck next to Los Pinos River, watching the mountainside on the other side. We had to get up at four in the morning and drive far into the forest to arrive here on time. Andrew Abeda says we don't have long to wait. If you get down there, you won't see them until they get by these dead trees over here. So if you stand on this side, you might be able to see them as they come out over there where those yellow aspens are. Yeah. The dogs could be coming in the front. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. So, you all right, Devin? Yeah. You got to do some jumping jacks to warm up. (laughs) Andrew is hollering to his son-in-law, Devin, who's keeping an eye out from outside the truck. But Devin doesn't have to do jumping jacks because soon enough, down through the aspens, they come. A flock of 975 sheep and a handful of goats. Driving them along is a sheepherder on horseback and his dogs. Watching the scene, I'm struck by how timeless it all feels. I've always thought of my old family friend Jake Heflin as the most quintessential cowboy I've ever met. But Andrew's ancestors were the original vaqueros who started developing these cowboying techniques hundreds of years ago. For generations, the Abeda family has spent summers up in these mountains with their flock, in the fall, driving them back down and across this river. Or hopefully they'll cross it. Right now, as they reach the bank, they're getting all bunched up. They won't ford the stream. Sometimes they sit there and look at the water for half an hour and then cross right, no problem. Sometimes you have to get a U or something to make them cross, but sometimes they do it by themselves. They're just depending on their mood. Their mood today is obstinate. A couple of ewes consider following the Great Pyrenees dog when he wades across, but then, meh, change their minds. Devin and Andrew get out on the edge of the flock and wave their arms and shout. I'm worried that my photographer Anna and I are discouraging them. We back up into the willows. The sun is out now and it glows in the autumn leaves and twinkles off the water. Finally, Regal, the sheepherder, uses his lasso to catch one of the goats by the horns. He shouts, Chivo, Chivo, which means goat in Spanish. He pulls her out into the river and across. 
It does the trick. The sheep follow the goat and start crossing in one torrential surge. This dramatic scene on the banks of Los Pinos River, it's been happening for generations. Andrew's family came here in the mid-1800s as part of a Catholic missionary expedition. One of the early ways that the cowboy lifestyle spread north across the Americas from Mexico. There used to be lots of family ranches that made this sheep drive from the San Juan Mountains to the San Luis Valley. But now, this one that we've witnessed today, the Abeda families, it's the very last one. And over the generations, it's taken a lot of fighting to protect it. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. After the river crossing is over, Devon says this year's really wasn't that bad. It actually went pretty smooth. Last year it took us quite a while longer really? to get across. Really? Okay, I was very worried that we were holding things up. No, last year it, we fought and fought and fought. We fought. <laughs> they did not want to come across last year. Was there year. higher water? No, it was just, the goats weren't here last year, so. That helped. It, it, that one made it yeah, to come across. Yeah. The other goats were just like, okay, let's go. Now it's time for Regal to herd the sheep up the other side of the ridge. We drive up the steep four-wheel drive road to meet him at the top with provisions. Some spam and egg burritos and some cold beers. I go once a week and I take a 15 pack of beer. Yeah. By 9 o'clock in the morning, we're already drinking <laughs> beer. <laughs> I only drink two of them, though. Yeah. So I have to drive home. Yeah. I stay with them an hour, an hour and a half visiting with them. Yeah. So I think it's a little lonely up there, I think. Driving up, I ask Andrew how, of all his siblings, he ended up taking over the sheep herding. You want to call it bad luck or good luck? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was since a little, since I was a little kid, I was always hanging around with my grandpa. You know, because they were the sheep were his. I'd take care of them, you know, during the lambing season. And I wasn't in school, you know, on the weekends. And, well, you know, my grandpa got up in age, and you know, they gave me the opportunity to buy them, and I said, well, all right, you know. The bad luck side of inheriting this job is how wildly the sheep market fluctuates, Andrew tells me as we sit waiting. It seems like everything else, the price goes up and the price of the, your commodity goes down, and that's mm -hmm. when it's kind of kind of sad. But this year, it's actually pretty good. You know, like I tell my son, we used to sell these lambs for, oh man, if we even made $75 a lamb, we were happy. Now, well, now what are you making? Well, I sold them the other day for... Uh, 250 bucks a lamb. So. Really? Mm-hmm. So... That's much better. That's much better is right. So, you know, last year was only 150. Well, actually, last about 140, 141. So, making 110, $110 more this year than I did last year. Andrew says all these sheep have already been sold to a feedlot in eastern Colorado. He says locals aren't willing to pay those prices for lamb. But right now, it's selling well globally for the Middle Eastern and African diets. Goats sell for even more. He's crossing his fingers that this trend continues, because over the last few decades, he's seen the downside. 
it's you know it's not an easy life you know I guess the only good thing about it is that it's so independent you know you can come and go as you please and you don't answer to no one and mm-hmm. just like Judy and Jamie last episode the allure of ranching always comes back to the freedom of living close to the great outdoors even if it is lonely the abetas run cattle too but he doesn't like that work as much because he doesn't get to be up in the mountains. We get out of the truck and watch for the sheep to crest the hill. How long is it going to take to get all the sheep down? The rest uh-huh. of today? Or yeah, we should be there by this evening. Really? Yes. That was a yeah. long drive. <laughs> the sheep yeah, are no, they, fast, they move pretty quick, actually. Yeah. They do move pretty quick. There they are right there now. So oh, they've got to open the other fence there now and, and then uh, go through and then they just go over the top and then so they'll straight be... down the road. The flock doesn't stop to graze, quiet in their determination to get off the mountain. Once the sheepherder has recharged with a beer and a breakfast burrito, it's time to get going. I think we better take off. I think them sheep don't want them to go. Yeah, okay. Down the fence line, so. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, guys. You can always come back. That's photographer Anna shouting thank you to Regal on horseback, who's already disappearing into the pines, sheep and goats swirling all around him. Again, I feel transported back in time. It's an iconic image, one that Jim Hoy, the cowboy folklorist we met last time, says harkens back to an era before the cowboy even existed, back to the Spanish colonization of the Americas and the era of the vaquero. Tierras del rincón, la sembré con un buey pando, se me reventó el barzón y siempre la yunta andando cuando llegue a media tierra. El arado iba The Vaquero was a result of the Spanish conquest. 1529, Cortez brought horses to the American continent and what's now the mainland of Mexico. Actually, Columbus, on his second voyage, brought cattle, three different breeds, one of which is Andalusian. And over the centuries, those breeds developed into the longhorn. And the longhorn, of course, is the a type of cow that, was, that we equate with the cowboy and rightly should. Even the name cowboy is taken from vaquero. Vaca means cow in Spanish. Jim says those Spanish conquistadors arrived with extraordinary horse-riding skills they'd picked up from their contact with the Moors. But Jim says an interesting transformation happened in who could ride a horse in the Americas. The ruling class in all those countries over in the old world are horsemen, and peons weren't allowed to ride horses in those countries. They could ride a donkey maybe, but they couldn't ride horses. Uh, a knight rode a horse, not the guy, not the serf on the, the land there. But in the New World, there's a saying in uh, Uruguay, in Montevideo, the beggars ride. In the New World, we say we go by, not by birth, but by your abilities. If you've got the ingenuity and the ability to catch a wild Mustang, you can be a rider. These free-spirited horsemen were hired on to bring livestock to a landscape that was totally unlike Europe's. They were tasked with feeding cattle and sheep on the enormous 
arid, open range of the Americas. It takes many, many, many more acres to feed a cow, which means they're all spread out. If they're out there covering tens of thousands of, maybe not even acres, but the square miles, needs something that needs doctoring, needs something that needs work, need to brand the calves. You don't want to have to drive them 50 miles to get them into a pen, so you rope them. That's how I think the Mexicans, the vaqueros, developed that out of necessity, that need to rope an animal. Roping animals made it possible to keep them on the wide open plains. But not just any rope would do. So they invented the braided hide lariats and lots of other equipment that we associate with cowboys now, too. The American cowboy adapted the shafts style of boots they got from them, the saddle they got from the, the vaquero, uh, the method of working cattle, rounding up, having uh, roundups in the spring and fall. Jim says the original rodeo, or rodeo, wasn't a roping contest. It was a roundup. It came from the Spanish verb rodear, which means to surround. And that 10-gallon hat? The owners, the wealthy owners, wore felt hats that had a, a hat band adorned with gold pieces. And those gold pieces were galleons, which is where we, 10 of those, which is where we get the notion of the 10-gallon hat. Galleons were Spanish coins. They needed pointy boots to go into the stirrups they invented, leather chaps to protect them from the cactus of the Americas. These amazing innovations of the vaquero were a well-kept Mexican secret until the 1800s, when ranch owners in what is now the U.S. became interested in not only Mexican cattle, but their cattle handlers as well. These Mexican workers were so good with cattle management, they promoted them to all their ranches, from Montana to California and across the West. Then, after the Civil War, the cattle drive era came along moving huge herds of cattle over hundreds of miles before there were fences. Hoy says drovers used vaquero techniques and equipment for those drives. Estimates are that one-third of the 35,000 men and boys who worked as cowboys drovers in those trail drives were black and about a little under 20 percent were Mexican. So you had a large number of black and vaquero trail drivers. Now, the problem is, of course, we have always thought of the cowboy as white. Any black on the range was a cook. Mexicans were bandits. I mean, that's just a terrible stereotype to have. It was the ultimate whitewashing, taking the very way of life of the vaquero and appropriating it as something new, the cowboy. But Jim says there was a backdoor migration taken by some vaqueros that circumvented the era of the big cattle drives, Catholic missions working their way north to convert and colonize the indigenous. Some of these missions were genocidal in their approach, killing or subjugating anyone who resisted. Other missions were an attempt to escape that violence. But Hoy says both varieties had one thing in common. When priests would start a mission, and they spread a lot of the uh, work that way because they would bring along with them cattle, sheep, hogs, 
and they had to have a way to feed the Indians they were converting. They would no longer have a way of making a way, uh, living in their traditional way. Had to have a way of feeding them, and they had to have someone, of course, to look after the cattle and sheep. This reminds me right away of a story that Andrew's mom, Martha Abeda, tells me. That's coming up when we return. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. We have seven missions, and Antonito's one of the missions. But this church was built in 1938 or so. Really? 1938? Something like that. Martha tells us the story during a tour she gives us of the mission church in her hometown of Antonito in the middle of the San Luis Valley of Southern Colorado. This church is where she got married to her husband, Alfonso. It's the story of how her ancestors decided to settle in this spot on the Conejos River. They stopped in Guadalupe to rest. And when they were getting ready to continue their journey, uh, one of the, the burros wouldn't go. And no matter what they did to it, he he wouldn't stand up. The burro wouldn't stand up. So they emptied all of his packs and everything. And inside one of the packs, they found a little statue of of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And so the people, they took it as a sign that Our Lady of Guadalupe wanted them to build something there in her honor. And once they decided to stay there, then the burro got up and everything was fine. And right near where that stubborn donkey sat down, that's where they built their church, now considered the oldest church in Colorado. Lots of the descendants of that missionary party still live here, still speak the unique heritage style of Spanish. But Martha's ancestors came to what's now the United States much earlier than that. Martha's son, Aaron, is an old friend of mine from college. We struck up a friendship when we realized our poetry had intersecting themes. Back then, I was writing a lot about all the cowboys I'd grown up around, Jake and Jim and Judy and their mystique, the threats to their way of life. And Aaron was writing about that stuff too. But the cultural history he was exploring went back way farther than the pioneer history of North Park, where I grew up. Now, Aaron's published several books of poetry and fiction. He's also the Abeda family historian. He says he's traced Martha's ancestors back to El Paso in 1598 and to the brutal conquistador Juan de Oñate, who destroyed the Acoma Pueblo in 1599. A lot of the people he brought with him were, well, Oñate himself was a mestizo, even though he probably didn't identify with you know, his matriarchal side. But, you know, so many of the people that came with Oñate were, un, were not in the registers. They were women and or slaves and or indigenous, so they weren't even listed. Aaron says such violence complicates the reason his ancestors came north. The Abetas themselves were mestizo, both colonizers and colonized. My great great-grandfather came from Picuris Pueblo. He was not indigenous, but his wife was 
it would appear, at least on paper, his property. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what the records seem to indicate. I mean, without digging any deeper, and a person has a name, which is then literally stolen from them, and they're given a name that they've never even uttered in their life. Aaron says, so yeah, the reasons his ancestors migrated north, they weren't simply in search of converts. The 10 cent word that's coming to mind is we all have this longing, right? To be wild, to, to be free, to find new things, to, to search, right, to seek. So I, I think they were looking for themselves, honestly. Think of the violence of that era and the generations that preceded it. Think of the way that people were colonized and the brutality of that colonization. How do you heal that, right? Maybe you remove yourself from it, looking for a place that's absent those things. The Abedas were trying to escape the brutality of colonization. Aaron takes us out to see the ranch where his family found that solace. This is the original homestead, so all of, you know, that's not our house, but that's the fence line. And it goes all the way along the cliff. Then over here, this little yellow house over here, that's my grandma and grandpa's. They're deceased, but that's my grandma and grandpa's house. okay. And then the property goes all the way down to that far tree line and both sides of the river. We're here to meet Aaron and Andrew's father, Alfonso. We sit down at his dining room table together. Aaron hands out cookies. I'm going to eat cookies. You guys want some cookies? Girl Scout cookies. What? Yeah. You want some? Are they thin mints? Of course. It's okay if I break it, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alfonso says there's now seven generations of his family on this land. That was only six years after Mexico gave up Colorado in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Alfonso has a comeback for that old racist trope about go back to where you came from. Well, this was Mexico, so the United States came to us. We didn't go to them. So we didn't cross the border illegally. The boundaries moved, and then we became United States. When he was old enough to inherit the family ranch, Alfonso realized something important. If he wanted the ranch to prosper, he needed to be willing to go into debt, something his dad was too conservative to do. He applied for a loan to buy 320 more acres of land. But when he went to the bank... First time that I went to borrow money to buy this land, I went into the FHA office, it was called FHA, and I'll never forget the man's name, it was Downing. And he looked at my application, but he said, son, that's number one. Mm-hmm. Here people were born to be farm workers, not farm owners. I got out of there, I was so mad, but I didn't do anything. And 
course, we went to Denver because we couldn't buy that 320 acres. The Federal Housing Administration wouldn't loan him the money, they said, because he didn't have enough work experience, even though he'd been farming his entire life. Their ancestors brought the cowboy way of life to Colorado, and now the feds wouldn't support their efforts to grow their ranch. But determined to get that loan, Alfonso and Martha moved to Denver. And we left here with $13 in our pocket, and we, I wasn't going to get paid for two weeks. Oh, so geez. we lived with $13. I had paid the rent where we were going to stay. We didn't have any groceries, no furniture. So, so you guys have built everything from, from, Basically nothing, from, from nothing. For 10 years, Alfonso worked for a construction supply company to get the experience the bank wanted. Then he went back and reapplied for the loan. They turned him down again, this time on the grounds that he hadn't been farming for the last 10 years. Alfonso and Martha documented this racism over decades, biding their time. Then in 1999, black farmers successfully sued the federal government over discriminatory lending practices. The next year, Alfonso and Martha signed up as principal plaintiffs in Garcia versus Vilsack, a lawsuit brought by Hispanic and women farmers for those same kinds of practices. They even traveled to Washington to make their case to President Obama. Alfonso stood at a fence to shake the president's hand, and he'd brought something with him. Anyway, I took this and I wrote, we need your help, and a piece of cardboard that I put in inside my pocket because we weren't supposed to carry anything. And she was all scared because we, I was, you shouldn't be taking that in there. She's, like, She's always been a scaredy cat. But I took it anyway. So when he went and shook my hand, I went and showed him, we need your help. About six months later, he instructed the Department of Agriculture to settle with us. Of the 39 plaintiffs that participated in the San Luis Valley, 35 of them were successful. Martha did a lot of the research on behalf of her community to make that happen. Alfonso and Martha got a settlement of $250,000, well short of the $3.3 million that a forensic accountant determined that they should have received especially since it was their ancestors who brought ranching to this country in the first place. But still, Alfonso says it felt like a recognition by the government of the hardships they'd endured for generations. But Aaron says there's this other way in which he feels his community is misunderstood. A very vocal environmental movement in Colorado doesn't like seeing the Abeda family's sheep and cattle on public lands at all. Even though their flocks have been grazing here for generations, they feel it's time to change policies to protect public lands. He tells me this story about how some anti-livestock activists made an example of them. Our stock tanks out in the prairie were, were vandalized. and. 30,000 gallons of water, you know, just spilled out of them. And then the cows got stuck in the mud and the calves got stuck in the mud. And by the time we got there, there was a bunch of them that had suffocated. And there was this calf that was just barely alive. 
And I remember my dad walking out in the mud and the shit up to his waist. And he pulls this calf from the mud and the shit of 30,000 gallons of water and caliche, you know, clay. All these other animals with their eyes pecked out by the crows and the ravens and the magpies. And there's this calf who's just barely clinging to life. And my dad's over there giving this calf CPR and its mouth is full of mud and gunk and crap. And he's over there literally giving it mouth to mouth and pumping on its chest trying to save it. I'm thinking, you know, if they knew, if they really knew, they wouldn't have destroyed our stock tanks. You're right. This is a terrible story, I say. But overgrazing is real. Water pollution, climate change, those are real effects of too much livestock on the land. Aaron concedes there's a bad way to ranch. There are parcels that are overgrazed, no doubt about it. I mean, so who's the culprit there, right? Is it, is it the rancher? Is it the fence? Is it the loss of ownership through illegal and brokered and otherwise devious means where people have lost their livelihood but they're still clinging on to what they do have left and they don't have the means to you know, raise their animals? So yeah, things do get overgrazed, absolutely. No self-respecting rancher and or farmer would intentionally overgraze anything because they know what it's doing. So to me, that's a, an issue of survival. And the genesis of that survival is likely loss. Thinking back to the Abeda family's long struggle to get fair bank loans to support their ranch, I can see his point. It's hard for ranchers to treat the land well when they experience intentional and systemic discrimination. We'll explore the environmental impacts of ranching in greater detail in future episodes. But from Aaron's perspective, the land is a member of the family. And the kind of ranching that has been practiced here in his community is unique because of its deep historical roots. I think if you were to apply a pronoun to the land, in English it would be it, right? And in Spanish it would be ella, like like a human almost, right? And one thing my grandpa, I don't remember when he said it, but I remember he said it, Right? And he was talking about how we need to take care of our property, how we need to take care of our homestead, take care of the ranch, take care of the land. And he goes, because it benefits in there. Right? And that always struck with me, right? so, so we benefit from her. As the state of Colorado prepares to reintroduce wolves, he wrote a poem about wolves and sheep and how misunderstood they both are and how they both serve as metaphors for his community, misunderstood in much the same way. It's called... I write these, and he says it's written in a form that reflects the zigzagging hunting style of wolves. I write these, I write these, I write these. These words, I write them for my town. These words are not about extinction. These words are for my brother who rises while Venus burns. These words are milk poured into bottles. These words are shadow. They are lambs crying while Venus burns. My town is dying. My town is alive. These words are my town. My town is a wolf. These words are wolves. I write these wolves. They are shadow. They are fog. These words are wolves. They words weave in. The words weave out. These words are invisible. These words weave in and out of trees. These words are about salvation. These words are the only herd of sheep still up high. These words are for those who would see my brother's sheep gone. These words are sheep emerging from the trees. The trees are ancient. They are words. After the vaquero lifestyle is culturally appropriated into the cowboys, 
ranching spreads rapidly westward. Next time on The Great Individualist, we continue tracing that history and learn how, wherever it went, the cow was brought in to prove a place was truly civilized and how that process of domestication led to the violent extermination of the bison. Because buffalo was everything. It was life's commissary to our grandmas and grandpas. It was food, it was clothing, it was shelter. It was our economy. And that's the reason why it was exterminated, was so that our lands could be acquired. How has your community worked to retain the original vaquero culture? Share your stories with us on social media at Modern West Pod or email us at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. I'm Melody Edwards. Tennessee Watson is our story editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Noah Greenspan is assistant producer. Anna Rader is marketing coordinator. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett and Diane Berner. To see Anna Castro's original photography for this season, go to our website at modernwest.org. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. A special treat to wrap up today's episode. I leave you off with the rest of Aaron Abeda's poem, I Write These. The words are weak. I want to save them. I write these words. I write these wolves. I write these sheep. My brother's sheep, my brother's sheep are the only herd up high. These words are a bare thread. These words I write, a bare woolen thread. These words, these words, these wolves, these words are fog. I write them. I write these These words, I write what is more powerful than water. Water cuts the earth. I write what is more powerful than water cutting the earth. Words, these words, any words, the words I write, these, these that I write, that I write here. It is a Thursday. I write on a Thursday. Words that are wolves. People hate me with their words. My town is broken by words. My town is broken by only one word. I write this word. I write it here. The word, the word, the wolf I write is loss. Someone write words. Someone writes words that hate my brother's sheep. I write these words. These words I write are for my brother's sheep. Someone will try and save wolves. Every word has its birth. I write wolves. The words, the wolves are being saved. The words are sheep being killed. The wolves will not do the killing. Some, something, someone more powerful than water. What kills my brother's sheep will be more powerful than water. I write these. I write these. I write these wolves. These wolves are my town. These words are children. These words are children with one language. These words are wolves, words, wolves, words, wolves. They are a pack of wolves at the edge of a great meadow. Someone save something. These words are wolves. These words are Venus as it burns. These wolves are children. Someone save something without killing something else. I write, I write, I write to someone who comes to save me. I write to someone who would kill 400 years. I write for those 400 years tradition. I write for the wolf who was here before the tradition. These words are a bare thread, a bare woolen thread. These words are these wolves. I write are one herd up high. I write these wolves for someone who would save me by cutting out my tongue. The wolves are language. The language is more powerful than water. Water weaves through stone. These wolves weave. These wolves are the barest of thread. These sheep weave. Both weave. Words weave. Wolves weave. Words. Sheep and wolves are woven there. I've said it. I write these. I write these. I write these. These words are written so that they might live. These words are one language. These words I write because I am afraid. I am afraid. There. I've said it. These wolves are words. These words are fear. These words are sheep. These words are fear. Someone will try to save something. Their words will be fear. We kill what we fear. These words are wolves. These words are sheep. I write them both. I write them both. I write them both. As Venus burns into Thursday, I write these. I write them both. I write these. I write these. So that salvation is not a word that sounds like loss. 
One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.